Sean flipped his iPad around to show me something. It was a picture of Pope Francis wearing a big, puffy white coat with the undeniable aura of street-style luxury. My first thought was, that's hilarious. My second thought was, huh, I thought Pope Francis was all about dialing back the papal finery. The thought I never had, though, was, that's not real. But, spoiler alert, it wasn't real. Pope Francis really is all about that vow of poverty after all. The Pope coat pic is an AI-generated image, and it wasn't perfect. But it was good enough to fool people who, like me, didn't look closer. I'm Tara McMullen, and this is What Works, the show that explores how to navigate the 21st century economy without losing your humanity. Today's episode is all about trust and responsibility and how those qualities impact the cost of doing business and the work that's required for any company to be successful. Specifically, what we're going to look at is what I'm calling the trust-profit paradox. The Pope coat pick came up in a recent conversation on Decoder between The Verge's Nile Patel and Brian Chesky, CEO of Airbnb. Chesky brings up the Pope coat pick in response to Patel asking about the potential tsunami of garbage AI content. Patel then says that one of his favorite philosophical questions to ask interviewees is, What is a photo? He then poses this question to Chesky, asking specifically about the line between a photo that's been, say, run through filters to enhance it, and a photo that's been created through a generative AI tool. The Airbnb CEO is stumped. It's a really great question. Um, I don't. I, I. I don't know. Possibly, nearly where to where to say where that line is. Like, clearly, like like increasing the saturation of photo, like changing the exposure to put in its best light seems kind of like kind of reasonable. Um, but like making it feel like the room is much larger than it is with a wide angle lens and you get there and it's small is misrepresenting. So I kind of would leave it up to the community. It seems Chesky had never considered that someone might type mid-century modern living room into mid-journey and use the result to boost bookings of their Airbnb listing. Chesky pivots. There's going to be really subjective things where even if we could know where the line is, how would we ever enforce it if we don't go and physically inspect the property? And so therefore, what we need to do is put it back on the community. He cites the high rate of reviews that listings receive after a stay. But you're probably asking a question we haven't reckoned with yet. Where exactly is that line between like mildly embellishing to make something look great and actually misrepresentation? I don't know the answer to that. In order for the community to stop misleading listings using AI-generated photos, the community will need to book and stay at the misleading listings. 
the community, may arrive at their vacation destination and realize they've been had. They may arrive and realize their destination doesn't meet their needs or even jeopardizes their safety. In order for the community to moderate bad behavior, the community will suffer. Chesky offhandedly suggests that the only way Airbnb could ensure the authenticity of its listings would be to visit every property. This is presented as completely absurd. How could they ever manage those logistics? How could they ever pay for it? It just doesn't make sense. But why? Why is ensuring that when someone pays a few thousand dollars for a week-long stay, that they'll actually get what they paid for? How is that not the company's business? By the time someone leaves a negative review, the damage is done. But Chesky would prefer not to take any responsibility for that damage. Imagine the logistics. Profit it seems, in the internet age, hinges on avoiding responsibility. Social media platforms aren't responsible for hate speech posted on their sites. Marketplaces aren't responsible for misleading listings. Gig work companies aren't responsible for meeting minimum wage requirements or fair labor standards. Influencers aren't responsible for the products they shill. Course creators aren't responsible for the results they promise. The goal appears to be building a business that uses the law, market forces, behavioral psychology, and social capital to transfer the risk of use completely from company to consumer. And it's understandable, really. Responsibility is expensive. It requires labor. It takes time to build systems, both operational and moral. It necessitates saying, no to people who might really want to give you money. Responsibility is political in a way that seems dangerous today. But responsibility is the cost of capital when your capital is primarily trust. And if a company can't pay the cost of capital, then is it really working as a company at all? In an essay originally published in the Wall Street Journal, management theorist Peter Drucker categorically declares that there is no such thing as profit. He writes, quote, Businessmen owe it to themselves and owe it to society to hammer home that there is no such thing as profit. There are only costs. Costs of doing business and costs of staying in business. Costs of labor and costs of raw materials. Costs of capital, costs of today's jobs, and costs of tomorrow's jobs and tomorrow's pensions. The cost architecture of a company like Airbnb is very different from the kinds of companies that Drucker studied between the 1940s and 1975 when his essay was first published. So how can we think about the costs that Airbnb should be accounting for? Traditionally, the factors of production have been labor, land or physical resources, and capital. For a platform company like Airbnb, 
labor accounts for both the paid work that goes into building and maintaining software and operations, as well as the unpaid work that goes into creating, advertising, and updating property listings. Airbnb, despite not paying for those listings, does incur costs on that unpaid work through things like community support and marketing. Now, of course, Airbnb doesn't require land or factories to make its product, but it does require technological infrastructure. There are costs to hosting, networking, and securing the code the platform is built on. Finally, there's the cost of capital. Airbnb is a publicly traded company listed on the NASDAQ, which means all kinds of investors can contribute financial capital with the hope of a future return. But before it went public, it was a venture-backed startup soliciting financial capital to fuel growth. Some of that capital was used to secure labor and technological infrastructure. But the riskier investment, what made the cost of capital dramatically higher, was in trust. Only by generating trust in the Airbnb platform could the company generate the return required to create capital for investors. Venture capital creates the runway required for a startup to build trust. Here's Nico Matichek, a professor at the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University. If you look at, at the sharing economy, for instance, to a large extent, their success depends on their ability to create trust between third parties, trust between somebody who wants to rent out their apartment and trust between somebody who, who wants to rent that apartment. Or if you think about yourself... Matichek goes so far as to say that trust is an economic asset on which firms can earn a return. Trust as a form of capital, though is easily destroyed. It would make sense for companies to focus on maintaining and increasing their supply of trust. But instead, we find companies routinely self-sabotaging their trust reserves for short-term gain. Now, examples abound. Facebook, Twitter, Uber, Etsy, the list goes on and on. Maintaining the trust of the people who make your business model work should be business management 101. In fact, both Peter Drucker and management thinker Roger Martin make exactly that case. Martin lays out the evidence in a lengthy article for the Harvard Business Review magazine. Optimizing a company for shareholder value delivers no greater returns to those shareholders than managing a company based on customer needs and trust. He writes, quote, why is it that companies that don't focus on maximizing shareholder value deliver such impressive returns? Because their CEOs are free to concentrate on building the real business rather than on managing shareholder expectations. Platform companies must maintain existing and generate new trust capital in order to maintain market share, aka relevance. But to ensure the supply of financial capital, platform companies must maximize profit to grow shareholder value. While trust capital and shareholder value should be positively correlated, they're, in fact, at odds. I'm starting to think of this as the trust-profit paradox. Today's platform companies, like Airbnb, talk a good game about caring about their customers. But at the end of the day, their chief concern is shareholder value. 
Martin also makes it clear that you can't optimize for both customer satisfaction and shareholder value. Optimization, he says, is linear. One must follow the other in terms of priority. I think it's rational to trust firms that care about the future, and it's foolish to trust firms that don't care about the future. Nico so Matichek instance, again. Another example would be firms in which employees are being rewarded very strongly for short-term performance, for quarterly earnings or quarterly performance. Because again, decisions are then made by employees who care a lot about the present profits, and they care much less about future profits. And so again, these are the kind of firms in which I would be suspicious about whether or not they're going to because companies profits. choose to optimize for shareholder value which hinges on quarterly expectations they will inevitably destroy trust capital over the long term if companies were to optimize for trust capital they would likely lose access to the financial capital they need to cover the cost of trust hence the trust profit paradox Maintaining trust requires accountability. Companies must take responsibility for the ways their platforms interact with the wider world in order to maintain or increase their supply of trust capital. Sure, Facebook could not have known, or I don't think they could have known in 2007, that by 2016, bad actors would use its data to meddle in US politics. But it has a responsibility to safeguard against that, given what it knows or could have easily surmised pre-2016 about how the proliferation of misinformation impacts the trust of a large segment of its former user base. I'm sure that building the operational and technological security to bolster trust in this environment is expensive, but that is the cost of doing business in this way. Profit, Drucker argues, should be an insurance premium against future risks, including the jobs that will need to be created, the technology that needs to be upgraded, and changes to the cost of capital. A company that views profit in this way would be more prepared for changing conditions that jeopardize trust. It would make sure that its people and technology could respond to new threats even if they didn't have the response teams waiting for action, they'd have a plan to execute that would bring in the people and tech required to maintain trust. That is what a responsible company would do. Responsibility requires an investment in care and maintenance work. And while I believe that Chesky cares if his platform becomes overrun with AI-generated images, he doesn't seem to care enough to build the operational infrastructure to prevent that from happening. If he and the Airbnb team paused to consider how they could implement more responsible systems when it comes to AI, well, they'd actually need to pause. And pausing is antithetical to the move fast and break things ethos that lingers in Silicon Valley. Pausing jeopardizes profit and shareholder value. So what? does it look like for an organization, entrepreneur, or creator to take trust and responsibility and build it into an operational strategy? First, responsibility requires wrestling with the way things could go wrong, and sometimes very wrong. 
any new project or idea will likely seem to be all upside. But no project or idea ever is. There are always opportunity costs and trade-offs at the very least. But there are typically potential unintended consequences that will require looking down the timeline to notice. It might be all good at launch time, for instance, but what about three years from now? What was so troubling to me about Chesky's non-answer to the question about AI-generated images was that it indicated the Airbnb team wasn't wrestling with the way things could go wrong. Chesky had all sorts of ideas about how it could go right. They imagined Airbnb as, quote, one of the most personalized AI layers on the web. They're dreaming up ways that the AI-powered system will get to know guests so well that it will serve up only the perfect properties for you. They see the potential for a multimodal interface that interacts with guests in different ways depending on the task. But they didn't see people gaming the system by creating listings with AI-generated images. Hmm? They didn't wrestle with whether the ability to tell if a listing was authentic was kind of make or break for them. Oh. Chesky deflects. Authenticity of information and verification of information is now a whole new problem that we have to resolve on the internet. So, like, I think that we need to develop new technology to reauthenticate photos, to reauthenticate people's identity, reauthenticate people's information. The problem, of course, is that the tech is already here. It's being deployed. I saw the Pope in his white puffy coat. And I could be wrong, but I don't think the we Chesky uses here is Airbnb. I think that we is the collective we of market-driven techno-solutionists that we assume will save the world from the ravages of those who use technology for evil. Only by wrestling with the way things can go wrong can we build systems and safeguards to hopefully avoid those things. If we can't avoid unintended consequences, we need to be able to ask ourselves if the upside is worth the downside. And if this new project or idea is worth the potential downside, then we should have plans in place to deal with things going wrong when they inevitably do. Second, taking responsible action requires knowing what a company is and is not responsible for. What a company takes responsibility for is a statement of its true values. It demonstrates trustworthiness, perhaps more than any other aspect of operations. More companies and entrepreneurs should take responsibility for the value they create and the way that value is experienced by customers. But that doesn't mean that companies and entrepreneurs are responsible for everything. When I ran a social network for small business owners, we decided to take responsibility for the fact that a new member wouldn't know whether our community was right for them until they joined and gave it a try. We built an approach to welcoming new members that helped them figure out whether they were in the right place and made it easy for them to quit and get their money back if it wasn't. We realized that we couldn't live up to our values if our business model was built on people remaining members simply because we didn't want to take responsibility for a key component of their experience. But once a member had committed to the community and started to use the platform, we also needed to let go of responsibility for how they used the resources we provided. 
one person might binge our entire library or hang out and post every day. But another person might only show up for live events. Those were, in fact, both good ways to interact. As long as we offered encouragement and opportunities to realize the value they invested in, we had to let them decide the particular way they would do that. When Substack co-founder Chris Best rightly received pushback on his bad responses to questions, also from the Virgis Patel, about hate speech on the platform, it was a signal that the way Best interpreted the company's values wasn't how many Substackers thought the company values should be interpreted. Substackers signaled that the platform was running the risk of losing their trust, which was an existential threat. And while the cleanup wasn't perfect, the company did make moves to demonstrate that it was listening and considering where its responsibility would start and stop. All said, the trust-profit paradox creates an environment in which questions of responsibility are sometimes the last questions to get asked. Consumers find themselves in a responsibility vacuum of management's own making. When everything can be reduced to dollars and cents, lines of code, or behavioral psychology, no one needs to think of the complex and unpredictable systems that create and maintain trust. We're only responsible for making the numbers work. Every user for themselves. Modern political economy shifts the burden of responsibility away from the large public and private institutions that are in the best position to accept the burden. First, it was privatized, turning social responsibility into a matter for markets. Now, companies shift the burden of responsibility by making consumers and workers absorb the risk. In the end, we're the ones left with the bill. Every episode of What Works is also published as an essay. Find the complete archive and subscribe to get new essays delivered straight to you at read.explorewhatworks.com. That's read.explorewhatworks.com. What Works is a production of Yellow House Media, a boutique production agency for podcasters who are changing our assumptions about culture, leadership, and business. Today's episode was written and edited by me, Tara McMullen. Our production coordinator is Lou Blazer. Our production assistant is Emily Kilduff. Marty Seafelt is our audio engineer. John McMullen is our executive producer. What Works is recorded on the ancestral homeland of the Susquehannock people. And the Yellow House is located on the unceded land of the Kutunaha Nation. <laughs>